Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So I watched Joe Biden last night presenting his emergency rescue plan. We called it yesterday. I gotta say, uh, it sounded the framework sounded very similar to what we presented on yesterday's show. But of course, his was imperfect. And you have been rightly all over it with what needs to be made better. And that is our work ahead. But let's take a breath and look for a moment at some very big things that Joe Biden did say last night. Because when an old time neoliberal like Joe Biden moves in our direction and not in austerity's direction, you, you really actually don't want to miss it. Millions of Americans never thought they'd be out of work. Many of them never even envisioned the idea, are facing eviction, waiting for hours in their cars to feed their families as they drive up to a food bank. Millions have kept their jobs, but have seen their hours and paychecks reduced, barely hanging on as well. That's happening today in the United States of America. Just as in the midst of a dark winter of this pandemic, as cases, hospitalizations, and deaths spike at record levels, there is real pain overwhelming the real economy. One where people rely on paychecks, not their investments, to pay for their bills and their meals and their children's needs. You won't see this pain if, you score, if your scorecard is how things are going on Wall Street. But you will see it very clearly if you examine what the twin crises of a pandemic and this sinking economy have laid bare. The growing divide between those few people at the very top who are doing quite well in this economy and the rest of America. Just since this pandemic began, the wealth the top 1% of the nation has grown roughly $1.5 trillion since the end of last year, four times the amount for the entire bottom 50% of American wage earners. Some 18 million Americans are still relying on unemployment insurance. Some 400,000 small businesses have permanently closed their doors. And it's not hard to see that we're in the middle of the once-in-several-generations economic crisis with the once-in-several-generations public health crisis. The crisis of deep human suffering is in plain sight, and there's no time to waste. We have to act, and we have to act now. Was that Bernie Sanders? Oh, no, no, no. That was actually not the Joe Biden we are used to. Now, I know that acknowledging the scale of this challenge is not the same as addressing it. But as I watched him, I kept thinking of that great observation from James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I think we can mark down last night as the moment Joe Biden faced what needed needs to be changed right now. But that's actually not all. In this moment of crisis, with interest rates at historic lows, we cannot afford inaction. It's not just that smart fiscal investments, including deficit spending, are more urgent than ever. It's that the return on these investments in jobs, racial equity, 
will prevent long-term economic damage, and the benefits will far out, out surpass, far surpass the cost. A growing number of top economists has shown even our debt situation will be more stable, not less stable, if we seize this moment with vision and purpose. All right, so this is actually big. And I say that because he's talking about spending right now. He is literally saying not to worry about the deficit and the debt. The scales fell from their neoliberal eyes and the shackles were taken off of the economy last night. Biden's embrace of deficit spending opens up a huge space to get done what needs to be done. Is it perfect right now? No. But the fact that their excuse of of being afraid of deficit spending, the same excuses they had in 2008, is not on the table anymore, means he's negotiating with us, progressives, folks fighting for working people, not with Mitch McConnell and Wall Street. This was the end of austerity as a governing principle embraced by Democratic presidents. Now, he didn't say it very eloquently, but the message was profound. Even if the national debt is your biggest worry, the country needs to spend now to stabilize the debt later. This will be a very different discussion about spending from the ones we had under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. And it's opposite of his nature. He came up with the rise of neoliberal austerity politics. So clearly something is shifting in his mindset and his staff's mindset if this is the opposite of how he was trained. In fact, here is one point that struck me last night. We are conditioned to look at a Democratic president's proposal as the starting point for negotiations with Republicans, a place you bargain down from. But with both houses under Democratic control, even if by the narrowest of margins, there is another dynamic. The Biden proposals are the start of discussions with us, with progressives, with senators like Sanders and Markey. So between Biden's embrace of spending and the dynamic that gives progressives a real seat at the table, this this is a very big moment. His economic advisors right now, there are people on the team who come from our side, And I didn't really believe that he was going to be listening to them. But the fact that he is embracing spending, just that in itself means he's seeing the world differently and he's seeing power differently right now. Now, I said, I complete, I will continue to say this is not perfect. We will finish the job of getting a total of $2,000 in cash relief to people who need it the most. The $600 already appropriated is simply not enough. We just have to choose between paying rent and putting food on the table. Even for those who've kept their jobs, these checks are really important. You see, if you're an American worker making $40,000 a year with less than $400 in savings, maybe you've lost hours or maybe you're doing fewer shifts, driving a truck or caring for the kids or the elderly, you're out there putting your life on the line to work during this pandemic and worried every week that you get sick, lose your job or worse. $2,000 is going to go a long way. Well, maybe not such a long way uh, for those of us who live in the real world. I would like to see at least $2,000 every single month until we get out of this crisis. 
Same for the unemployment insurance extension, which should run well into next year and offer bigger supplements. Approximately 14 million Americans have fallen behind on rent, many at risk of eviction. If we don't act now, there'll be a wave of evictions and foreclosures in the coming months as the pandemic rages on. This would overwhelm emergency shelters, increase COVID-19 infections as people have nowhere to go and can't socially distance. Next week, we'll take action to extend nationwide restrictions on evictions and foreclosures. This will provide, this will provide more than 25 million Americans greater stability instead of living on the edge every single month. And I'm asking Congress to do its part by funding rental assistance for 14 million hard-hit families and tenants. It will also be a bridged economic recovery for countless mom-and-pop landlords. So this rent action is necessary, but it is absolutely insufficient. We must include not only rent relief, but forgiveness of back rents. But here is why this is good. It is a start to the conversation, and we are at the table to demand more. Instead of just criticizing Biden, we should use this as an opportunity to continue to pressure him because he's in the door with us. I never in a million years would have thought that Joe Biden would be operating from this framework. But that is why winning the Senate was so important. When Biden called for a $15 minimum wage, by the way, still not high enough in my opinion, that does not reflect uh, inflation, but when Biden called for a $15 minimum wage and pointed out that Florida, Florida had already done it, I heard progressive economists, I did not hear near a Tandon whispering in his ear. And yes, it is time to stop talking about infrastructure and start building new infrastructure, as Biden said. Now, I know this fight is just starting, but I was glad that Joe Biden showed up to be part of it. That's a start. I'm not giving him stickers or awards at this point, but I'm saying this is the power structure right now. He is operating on our terms. He has to follow through with this. And strangely enough, he actually doesn't need to depend on Congress to do so. And he can't blame Joe, uh, Mitch McConnell or even Joe Manchin, who we should be pressuring. The filibuster will not stop many of these things from happening. Some of it is on his desk. Some of it can be signed. Some of it can go through uh, different processes of the Senate so that it's passed. So things are now happening on our terms. This is the starting point, And we just have to push, push, push with our allies, with unions, with working people, with stakeholders to make sure that it goes all the way. We are no longer living in an era of austerity if we are to believe everything that Joe Biden said. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, we have Simone Baptiste, and then later we have Esperanza Fonseca and Kate Willett. First off, uh, I want to thank everybody who is part of our book club. We have started our book club series. You can go check it out at, uh, at patreon.com, excuse me, slash The Nomi Key Show. We are in the midst of reading Thomas Paine and The Promise of America. And if you got your books, you should have at this point, uh, they are signed by Professor Harvey Kay. He threw that for you as a little surprise. Uh, we have one interview up with him already, a conversation about Thomas Paine's life. And we're doing another one this weekend uh, where we discuss your questions, the questions that you have brought up uh, as you're reading this book. And then 
for those of you who've signed up for more than one book a month, our next book is The Plunket of Tammany Hall. It's a thin one. It's not too hard, but it's, it's fascinating. It's a great read. Uh, you could probably read it in a couple of hours. We're going to be talking with a few folks who've, who've not only quoted this on our show, surprise, uh, but that'll be up next weekend. So make sure to get your questions in at the Nomi Key Show at gmail.com. And if you want to join, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Also, we're on Twitch. I don't know if you guys know. So thank you to everybody who is joining us on Twitch. Uh, we joined Twitch a few weeks ago. We sort of did it quietly. But check us out at the Nomi Key Show on Twitch. It's the underscore Nomi Key underscore show. We'll send out a graphic as well. But thank you to everybody who is viewing us from Twitch. And of course, everybody else listening over podcast and YouTube. Make sure to smash that like and subscribe button. We will be right back with Simone Baptiste. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. It's Femme Friday. In case you're new to the show, every Friday we have progressive uh, women, all women, coming on the show to discuss uh, what's important in progressive politics, not just related to gender, but but really a more uh, global perspective, uh, but from different perspectives, meaning YouTube, I don't know if you guys know, this is my public service announcement, uh, political YouTube, the audience is overwhelmingly male. And that's okay, because I know you guys are really in for this and want to learn and are super progressive. But we want to shift the space more because there aren't a lot of female voices uh, in this space. And so we are dedicating every single Friday to Femme Friday. And, and we're very excited to have, uh, for the first time on the show, Simone Baptiste. She's a DSA activist. She's also the director of $16,000. It is her directorial debut. Uh, it's a film. You can go check it out and uh, I, I'm very grateful that you're here with us and also Queen's World Film Festival as a Queen's girl I love it. <laughs> Hi thanks for having me Nomiki it's a pleasure to be here and can't wait to dive into some of the things that I've been creating um, and also how it intersects with the activist spaces that I'm a part of so yeah thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. So I, I'm really fascinated by your film. I think it's it's so creative. And, you know, one of the things that we, we try very hard on the show to talk about reparations as much as possible, and we have lots of different voices come on. I know that there's different perspectives on reparations. But um, what I find so interesting uh, about this film is, is you're able, you have, have illustrated the story through a narrative. And, and if it's okay before we get going, I just want to show the trailer of the film. After 400 years, African-Americans will finally have reparations <laughs> for slavery. Uh, yeah. Where's yours? Sorry and sisters got ripped from Africa. They built this country and then they got whipped and shit for like hundreds of years. Yeah, and then they canceled UPN. This money is hope. This is diapers. This is formula. This is title passwords for us, man. How many of us have had to suffer weird white nonsense in our communities? Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming in. Sock it to me. I believe that it is time that we sell white people our nonsense. Gotta love that last line. <laughs> uh, fun fact. So... 
Francesca Fiorentini. She was the first person that we shot on this film. So she set the tone for sure. Um, and yeah, it just became just kind of a, a full package of just nonsense. Uh, but there's a message underneath, I promise. <laughs> like the I don't see it nonsense at all. First off, Francesca Fiorentini is a friend of the show. She's filled in as a co-host a host for me before. She's always on Friend Fridays. So I, I love seeing that. I was like, yes, this, this is, these are my people. <laughs> so, um, all right. So let's just start off with what inspired you to write this film? Um, so I will take one step back. So I came together with Brody Reed and Ellington Wells, who actually wrote the film. I was the story editor and I directed it. And so we came together um, spring of 2019 um, just because we wanted to make something together and we didn't quite know what. Um, and as we began talking, the subject of reparations, of course, came up um, because every Democratic primary hopeful had this, you know, at the top of their mind whether they supported it or not, but not necessarily including the Black community in their discussions around it. And so we thought it'd be interesting to flip it on its head, of course, show the lifelong dream that I think many Black people share, like just wanting to see what it would look like, but also um, a hinge of like just reality if it were the lowest amount possible, which, you know, by the way things are going with our stimulus check, I don't think it's necessarily uh, too far of a stretch to say that we wouldn't get the amount of money that we wanted or the transformational change that we actually want to see in our structures and society. And so by starting out with this number, I think with the number $16,000, I think instantly it it intrigued people because they're like, what? Like, you're really going to show like something that wouldn't even pay your rent for a year. This is reparations. And we're like, yeah, so we can show you exactly what the worst case scenario is so that we can actually materialize demands around what we actually want to see. Um, And so that was kind of the jumping off point. Um, And of course, wanting to level the playing field and understanding around reparations, because I think a lot of leftists, they know that they should support it, but they don't actually know why. Um, And then uh, there aren't actually clear demands that are just unified on the left around reparations. And so this was kind of like a catalyst to those conversations. So why did you go with $16,000 specifically? Yes. So Uh, We had read a few articles where we did see numbers that low, which was like mind boggling. Uh, And so uh, I was just like, why don't let's just stick with that. Um, And then, of course, like in this world, um, base level, like black people, the average household wealth for black people is 10 times lower than that of a white household. So um, in this post reparations world that we're creating, we still kept those dynamics and showing how the $16,000 check did not do anything to close the racial wealth gap, uh, didn't do much of anything at all, but of course feeds into the this idea of black capitalism, which at its core will still exploit uh, the communities you know, that are buying into that. And so uh, we just kind of wanted to depict all of that and um, show literally the worst case scenario for how reparations could play out. Um, before we touch on just sort of uh, the, how the, the, sh- the, the movie like is the, the narrative of the movie, you mentioned black capitalism. For folks who aren't familiar with, with the dynamics of black capitalism, could you expand on that? 
Yes, it's um, it's nothing unusual to what we have heard over the past year, which is the buy black narrative or, you know, invest in black banks narrative. And I think that, you know, these things are nice to think about, but at the end of the day, they are not things that are going to really uplift the community of people. Um, and so, you know, by the nature of capitalism itself, it is meant to exploit and, and to exploit your resources and um, profit off of the backs of other people. And so what is, you know, I think the the idea that we're asking for money as a reparative justice for slavery or even, you know, any kind of crime committed against the black community since slavery, uh, the idea that the original crime was profiting off of the free labor of African-Americans in this country, we will not be like able to uh, liberate ourselves by replicating the same system. Um, and so the idea is reparation should be a true redistribution of wealth. Um, and then also we should be talking about what are the wide sweeping universal programs that we can also get behind that would benefit the black community. So the the way that um, I love I love the framework of of the film because uh, it's about a struggling black college grad who wakes up to find that reparations have finally been paid to descendants of enslaved people in America. Uh, with this newfound capital, he will decide what, what the best ways to spend his reparations are, which is again uh, totaling sixteen thousand yeah. dollars. You've made it sixteen thousand in my car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's and that's kind of like the main character does struggle with that. Uh, the main character, we um, put him in a position of being a little bit more of an altruistic kind of person, someone that um, understands the dynamics of capitalism. Whereas his sister Ellington is someone that uh, wants to work the system in her benefit. So she is totally the the personification of like that opportunistic person who will use capitalism to their advantage. He's on the opposite end of the spectrum, but there, you know, truly once you get that, um, that low amount, there isn't much you can do. And there's one climax in the film where uh, Brody, he gives this amazing speech basically as he's going to give away his check to someone who didn't receive a check. Um, and it's very patronizing. You know, I think it's like we it's almost like um, there's a consistent narrative that the black community is always having to lift each other up. Um, you know, we're always having to, uh, you know, we're, any like gains that we do make, it's never really truly a gain because there's still a large swath of people that will not benefit from it. It's the same thing as like if you're the first person in your family to go to college, um, you know, and that's like totally true. Like me, myself being the first person in my family to go to college, like that does not mean the rest of my family is uplifted with me. And I think that we have to, you know, seek true structural change that can uplift future generations because it almost feels like we're almost pulled back down as soon as we make any gains going upwards. Um, and so that's kind of like the farce of upward mobility within the black community. Um, and I think also within other marginalized communities as well, you know, we point to the shining stars, uh, but we don't actually like collectively think about the community as a whole. Like we're not all Jay-Z and Beyonce, like we're all, you know, mostly working class people. And but, uh, uh, we all have just as many 
hours and minutes in the day as Beyonce. So why can't we do that? Exactly. Yeah. You know, Beyonce worked her way up and pulled herself up by her own bootstraps. I think it's just like the narrative that most people want to think the Black community is already fully healed, you know, because they see these superstars out there who make it seem like that's attainable to all people. And so, yeah, we wanted to kind of just like, um, you know, show that behavior as well in the film, showing people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, invest in black cryptocurrency now. Like we made, we made up a lot of things, like, uh, <laughs> you know, um, just to like kind of, you know, really illustrate what we're talking about with black capitalism and, you know, exploiting others around you to benefit just a tiny group of people is not necessarily going to be our way out. I'm sorry, black cryptocurrency. Like you don't even know who's on there. It's hysterical. Yeah, I like, mean, yeah. <laughs> we we came up with a lot of really ridiculous stuff in this film and so like our goal actually is to expand this world even further and like we're pitching it as a tv show where we can like really dive into this post-reparations world and it's just been so much fun you know coming up with these ridiculous ideas but they all are grounded in something truthful which i think is super important for you know um saying like i think if you have a story to tell it should definitely be speaking to the times that we're in yeah i mean i remember the controversy uh i mean the show's been on for a while but but there's been recent controversy about the show blackish and just like what planet are you on what i mean it's just tone deaf for the moment and also you know it's 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 geared towards a white audience it's very odd how, yeah. how it came about yeah. broadcast network shows like the ideas broad appeal and so it's really tough to see something that's going to break through that barrier you know and talk about real issues and so you know i honestly feel like um we have like as artists who are leftists we have a responsibility to try to you know break through that and get something different made and so like for example boots riley getting sorry to bother you made was like a perfect way to break barriers for other people to come after him and so uh, i hope to see a lot more people doing this kind of work where uh you know you do have like a social justice narrative but it is founded and con like it's concrete in its uh, analysis um even if you're gonna make it funny because sometimes funny is just better you know <laughs> funny is truthful but it also it, it lowers the barriers for people to actually engage with it so can we talk a little bit more about reparations just um you know what, what you envision as as much as you can like in terms of framework um a strong reparations bill uh whatever it would be executive order i don't know how it would come about but um whether it would happen statewide or federally or both and simultaneously, just because it's the question that everybody who objects to it or questions it, how would you pay for it? Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you pay for anything? Like, we, when we wrote this film, like, the idea of a check being delivered to everyone was, like, completely, like, bonkers. And then this year happened, and, like, that was totally possible. So that was good to know. And so where I come from, um, I had been following uh, the bill HR 40 for a while, um, 
No movement on that nationally, but good news in California, we just passed literally what is a HR 40, but our California version of that, which is to study reparations. And that was written by Shirley Weber, who just got named the new secretary of state out here. So I'm just like, okay, now it has some teeth too. <laughs> and so um, in her bill that she um, had proposed like with the, the research and study into reparations. What I liked about it was that it wasn't exclusive to just African-Americans, because when I think about this, I think about how has the black community at large been affected um, in this capitalist society in the United States. Um, slavery was a global event. Reparations should be a global restitution. Um, and we should not be excluding certain groups um, out of receiving payment. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people get caught up. They get very caught up on like, well, then who does it go to? Um, I would just say, you know, we should be more so trying to heal people um, just from experiencing different levels of uh, oppression in this country. Like it doesn't have to necessarily be just from slavery. What about Haitians in ICE detention? They would have a rightful claim to reparations. And I think we, once we start listing them out, I think we could find like quite a swath of different reasons for people to receive reparations. Um, and I would love, you know, to be able to like have more conversations. I know that there's going to be a nine person task force in California that's going to be researching this. And I feel like if anyone is really interested in seeing true transformative reparations in this state to hopefully be expanded across the country, then you need to be lobbying those nine people because that's not a lot of people. When I think about it, I'm like, we could do that, right? How, how do they find the nine people? And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm always being a former commissioner myself, like uh, commissions always worry me because it's a place where ideas go to die <laughs> or yeah. get dragged out and lose attention. Mm -hmm. And then 20 years later, you have a report that's basically like, yeah, you know, black Americans deserve some, some financial, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and thanks for the 20 year process to tell us that. I think that's like what, you know, has happened with the national bill for sure, because that was introduced, I believe in the eighties and then it was reintroduced in 2019. And I'm, you know, I think that we have to be a little bit more optimistic. We're in a little bit of a different time right now, too. So it might be the right time for these conversations to truly materialize into gains. I know in North Carolina, they had, um, you know, a county that actually approved of reparations, not direct payment checks, but um, in reinvestment in communities. And so as we're seeing, you know, it seems like the uh, the cards are falling now. Like it seems like in little places, like there's little sparks and they're materializing into true gains. And um, I had the pleasure of being on a panel um, out of Tulsa virtually, but there are people in Tulsa that are currently in a lawsuit right now for their reparations. There's um, a couple of women who wow. actually are still alive who were survivors of that massacre. And oh, so, man. yeah, it's wow. just like, we have to, Think beyond slavery, think of any crime committed, and think about what would restitution look like in that case, because it's not impossible. Of course, like the dream is to have the universal programs that we all want, which is like Medicare for all, and uh, we want to see free college for all. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people 
buck when you talk about reparations because they think, oh, that's just for one person. But I think if you are one group of people, but if you un- uplift that group of people, everyone gets uplifted. And that's, you know, tends to be the case. You know, the most oppressed should also be the nucleus of this fight. And, you know, if we liberate them, we liberate everyone. Well said. Very well said. Simone Baptiste, um, where can people find your work right now? Are you working on anything special? If folks want to watch the film, where can they find it? Well, we are coming up on our like end of our year-long festival run. So this Monday on MLK Day, we're doing a special screening through Descent Magazine and DSA. And so um, that one's free if you want to attend. And then our very last festival is Slam Dance, which I wish I could have attended in person, but here we are. Um, and Slam Dance is just like a phenomenal festival. It usually would take place in Park City at the same time as Sundance. And so uh, we're a part of their episodes block and they have a lot of great diverse programming this year too. And tickets for that are $10. So two ways um, to catch it while you still can because after that a year is up and we're done. So yes. (laughs) Are you working anything else? Yeah, so- um, yeah, I'm writing a lot right now. I'm think, you know, really diving into like the radicals of our past that I want to like elevate and uplift through because I think a lot of times when we think of well, I guess when the uh the masses think about, I guess liberation and uh they think about racial justice they think about mlk and i feel like it's so overplayed yes we love mlk but there's so many other trailblazers that i want to highlight and one being asada shakur i want to highlight her uh, because i think it's a true hero's journey and a lot of people wouldn't think that but i like to take like unusual subjects and flip them on their heads so So yeah, look forward to that. I'm writing a lot and I hope to keep on elevating, um, you know, controversial issues, but trying to make them a little bit more approachable so that we can all, you know, move forward as a society and have basic understandings around what our demands should be. I don't think it should be controversial. Let's just say that very clearly. Um, <laughs> and if if Biden, as much as he likes to thank uh, black women for getting him to a win and specifically uh, black communities in Pennsylvania and, of course, Georgia, uh, what demands do you get out of it? I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm of Marcus Farrell's belief. You want Medicare for all? You know, let's let's bring other people to the table who have other stakes and let's make it happen. So. Um, yeah. I commend you for your work and, and thanks for, for coming on to talk about it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Let's go check out her work. Uh, we will put the links in the uh, info section on YouTube. So definitely go check that out. And of course, on Patreon as well. Uh, thank you, Simone. All right, folks, we will be right back after the break with our fantastic panel. Welcome back to the show, Esperanza Fonseca. She is she is one of our Femme Friday regulars. I have to say that that's my uh, my 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 favorite. Uh, she is a labor and policy organizer, and she's a member of the transnational feminist organization called Affirm. Uh, very grateful to have you back on to talk about all the news, just all all of the news that could possibly happen <laughs> has happened in the last two weeks. Yeah, thank you, Nomiki, and excited to be back on. Thank you. All right, so let's let's start off with um, 
this debate that's happening right now on the left, rightfully so, I believe, uh, will Biden and his administration support $2,000 checks or will they promote the smaller demand of $1,400 checks? Uh, it's, it's, you know, the package has been announced, but uh, we're getting mixed messages and also, you know, one time $2,000, $1,400. I, I mean, it's all moot to me because obviously it's going to make a real material difference in people's lives, but it has to happen. In my opinion, it has to happen every month. It's not going to solve the global economic crisis and it's definitely not going to solve people's personal economic crisis. To me, it just seems like a way to boost the economy for some people who can use that money to like purchase goods rather than like, I don't know, pay for their rent. Yeah, no, I, I uh, completely agree with you. And, you know, most people uh, are not stupid, right? And so they know that uh, a lot of, you know, these Democratic candidates who ran as progressives ran on the promise of $2,000 checks. We also know that Biden himself promised $2,000 checks. And so this backtracking from $2,000 to uh, 1400 is uh, quite insulting to people, right? Because we know that uh, workers are struggling very hard right now. And even a one-time $2,000 check, uh, while helpful, isn't enough to uh, address some of the you know, most severe problems that working people are going through. Um, I just want to welcome, we have Kate Willett, who she is uh, our other guest. We were having a little bit of a tech, tech issue. Uh, she is the co-host of the comedy podcast, Reply Guys. Uh, she's been on the show. She's a comedian, actress, and writer, and she made her network debut on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I didn't know that. That's pretty amazing. Kate, like all these secret, I had no idea. Uh, Kate, so we were just talking about the $2,000 check debate, uh, whether or not... <laughs> I mean, we're getting mixed messages from the Biden administration. Esperanza was just saying, you know, so many candidates, progressive or not, really. I mean, the Senate in Georgia, they campaigned on these $2,000 checks. But last night, Biden talked about $1,400 checks. So what's what's your take on this, Kate? And you're on mute. Me? Yeah, you, Kate. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was like, <laughs> um, so I guess I think that it's like a huge, you know, I... I guess I, I see whatever the justification is for like they were talking about the uh, $2,000 uh, stimulus and then eventually it was like, um, you know, they gave the $600 and then it's like, yes, 1400 makes it too. So I like see the rationale, but ultimately they promised everyone $2,000 checks. And if people don't see that $2,000, then it's going to feel like a betrayal and it's, it's just going to be a disaster for the Democratic Party. I think what's just really frustrating to me about this is as, as much as his speech, and I opened the show off with this, um, kind of came from a different center than he's normally. Like, I felt like he was speaking to different people. As much as he's saying he wants to cross party lines and talk to Republicans, I felt like he was actually talking to progressives and working people and operating from that center point, which I don't think is natural for, for Joe Biden, rather than a place of austerity. He was talking about like, who cares about the deficit? We have a crisis. People can't put food on their tables. They can't, you know, they're about to be kicked out of their homes. He was talking about the real material um, needs and concerns of, of not just working people, but pretty much everybody that's not a billionaire at this point. And yet, <laughs> I'm, this $1,400 just seems like money to go spend at like Best Buy. Like it's still like that solution reminds me of the 2008 Obama response, 2009 yeah, Obama exactly. response. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I mean, I remember in 2008, 
uh, I had been laid off from my job and I remember thinking, hey, it's nice that they extended the uh, unemployment a lot. And it was also nice that they were covering the COBRA payments. And so I had a positive view of Obama because those things made a material difference in my life. But I think for people who lost their homes, you know, like they had a really negative view of Obama. And in fact, many people, you know, did not want to turn out for the Democratic Party again in 2016. And the thing is, is yes, like $1,400 is going to make a difference to a lot of people. And there are people that will have a positive view of a Biden administration from that. But like for the massive amount of people who are really, really, really suffering right now and we're counting on that $2,000, this is going to feel like a huge betrayal. And Esperanza, I mean, you, you work in labor and, and are involved in, in DSA. Um, one thing that like, and, and he did mention it, but I felt like it wasn't integrated. Like he wasn't interconnecting everything publicly yet, or maybe in his brain yet. I, I feel like he might be getting there, like his economic advisors from Roosevelt Institute, some of the more progressive ones. I feel like he's hearing them and he's starting, it's, it's like starting to click for him that 20 million Americans will be kicked out of their apartments and have tens of thousands of dollars owed on their rents because, and end up in, in, in uh, uh, I mean, there aren't enough shelters, he mentioned. Like, I felt like that connected, but I don't know if he understands that like $1,400 is going to solve that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, you know, this uh, breaking of his own promise and also his sort of uh, pandering to both progressives, but also to the working class is intimately connected to the rise of Trump and the rise of, uh, you know, fascism that we're seeing in this country. And the reason why is because, you know, neoliberalism Mm -hmm. promised growth. And when it was not able to make good on its promise, and it, instead it plunged uh, tons of people into deeper poverty, um, what ended up happening was that a gap was created. And uh, fascism, uh, whatever it looks like you know, in our world today, which is different than the 1930s, um, that sort of stepped in to fill that gap as you know that sort of ideological prop and so what we're seeing right now once again is that biden uh who is you know a sort of multicultural progressive neoliberal is once again promising that his policies are going to be able to bring back growth right uh, sort of build back better right build america right. back again and what's going to happen is that those promises are going to fall flat Right. And so the same conditions that allowed for Trump to rise to power, uh, I think we're just going to see exacerbated over the next four years. And I think that's what mostly concerns me is that is a figure even worse than Trump going to pop up because Biden and his political party are not able to make good on their promises. So um, I want to go to <laughs> on this topic, and I think you're right. And 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 the way that neoliberals have been operating, it might the ideas may have shifted, um, but it's been very much damage control band aids after the crisis blows up. Uh, every now it's 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 pretty much every decade. That's what we're seeing is we're having a global recession or a depression every decade. But uh, I want to talk about Andrew Yang, who I'm not a fan of. Just Full disclosure, uh, I I always felt like he just was was a uh, you know it was like a marketing gimmick, frankly. But uh, Yang is Andrew Yang is trending for the proposals in his platform for New York City Mayor. 
live in New York. A key policy from the presidential policy, uh, primary is UBI. That's something that he ran on, of course. It has undergone major changes. Uh, UBI has lost the U, you know, universal, meaning that now it is heavily means-tested. That is what he is proposing, a means-tested UBI or just BI. Uh, according to a recent article on The Hill, Yang will provide 500,000 low-income New York City residents with $2,000 a year or about $166 a month. Uh, I'm not really sure how that positions him as the anti-poverty candidate. <laughs> I think it's I think it's effing offensive, frankly. I think it's actually worse than our current. Uh, you know, New York has a pretty strong uh, program in ter- I mean, comparatively to the rest of of the country in terms of whatever expansions, expanded Medicaid, uh, rental assistance in some cases. I th- public housing has a crisis, without a doubt. Uh, affordable housing has a crisis, without a doubt. With that being said, it is better than most of the country, and we're having real dynamic, hearty conversations about it in New York. I'm not saying that's great because nothing's happening, but as someone who ran for New York City public a- uh, office, but this is effing offensive, and it's actually worse than the government program. Kate, you're a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you. And a lot of Andrew Yang's proposals are actually worse than what there already is. Like even when he was pro- proposing UBI, it would come at the expense of, you know, all other existing programs for people who, uh, you know, are super low income. Um, you know, I think it was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be I don't want to pretend to remember the specifics of his UBI proposal, but I remember thinking like, let's say you're, you know, on any kind of government assistance, food stamps, um, like social security. I think that it was like pretty much you could, it was like one or the other. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't actually help more than uh, the things that, um, people already had it would also wear away at that social safety net and like uh, I'm not against giving people money but all of Andrew Yang's proposals feel like a real Trojan horse what do you think Esperanza yeah no I I would completely agree with everything Kate says and and just to add a, a few more things one is that you know as we know two thousand dollars a year is not enough right you know some candidates they pander to the black community to get their votes other candidates pander to the Latino community Andrew Yang really panders to uh, the younger generation who's growing up in economically precarious uh, situations you know um, and that's why you see him you know it's almost offensive right to throw uh, money at people like oh I'll give you this amount of money a month or a year so come vote for me. Uh, But what he doesn't tell you is that uh, those solutions uh, barely even address the symptom. They're they're not even a full Band-Aid, right? Um, One thing is that, you know, the details of his uh, basic income policy have not yet been released in full. Um, But what we do know is that it will be either partially or likely fully funded by philanthropy. Uh, We know that that is that is just not a good idea. Uh, The UBI pilot program. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's funded by, so it's a tax break. It's like, let's cut all of our social programs in exchange for your whopping $166 a year and all the billionaires get tax breaks. This is a, our, this is a Ponzi scheme. Sorry, Esperanza, go ahead. No, exactly. And, you know, we saw that in Stockton, California, uh, Mayor Michael Tubbs, Uh, you know, introduced the UBI pilot program funded by philanthropy. And what did he do during the 2020 Democratic primaries? He endorsed Bloomberg for president. 
we don't need political leaders who are in the pockets of billionaires, uh, you know, and their philanthropic organizations. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted, but I also think it's not just out of touch. I, I mean, let's not forget he's an entrepreneur. He made a lot of money in Silicon Valley. Uh, he hasn't worked in public policy. He has no experience in government. I love how they like laughed Marianne Williamson off stage, who actually had run for office and had been supporting candidates for years uh, and was a, is, is a multi like international bestseller in books and and yet Andrew Yang was totally justified with his one proposal, which was extremely flawed. But, but wait, there's more. I, I'm actually going to have a lot of fun with Andrew Yang over the next few, few months as I live in New York. Uh, bodegas. All right. I like this is the kind of thing that New Yorker, it drives them crazy. Um, Dorsey, let's just, can we just play that video of Andrew Yang in a bodega? <laughs> Okay, so many thoughts. You guys can open up, but I just have to throw out this. Unless there is a cat in the bodega, which has been said a lot, unless there's like um, four-year-old uh, yogurt in there, <laughs> Or like a kombucha that expired six years ago, uh, unless there's like like recessed lighting, unless you're getting an egg sandwich. What what is a banana? Who eats a banana from a bodega? That's like the, they've been sitting there for. They're usually brown. That's not a bodega. <laughs> Why does this matter, Kate? Why is this important? Why are we all losing our minds over it? Because it looks like he was in a CVS, and it also had that. Uh... It also had that, like, uh, that, I forget what movie this is from, but there's, like, an adult that comes to a, uh, is, like, with children, and they're, like, hello, fellow kids. This had, like, a, a very hello, fellow kids feeling to it. <laughs> this just looks like a grocery store, also. It, it, it's a grocer. Okay, so for those who don't live in New York, because I tweeted this out and people didn't understand, there are no corner stores in New York, but I think that would be more, like, what other folks, you have bodegas, which always have a cat in it. It's and and like lotto tickets and it's like very messy and dirty. You always get like five dollar umbrellas. I mean, you can just go on and on. Um, they're squishy. Like you bump into everything and you knock down things. It's very tough during COVID. Uh, so that's a bodega. There's a grocer, which looks like that's what that was, right? Um, and then there is uh, a deli, and that's where sometimes bodegas can have like pseudo delis but that's where you get your like really good egg sandwich or whatever else, like chicken parmesan. I don't eat that, but people love those. Um, this is going to be a whole segment now, guys. I'm just going to lean in on this. As friends, like, you don't live in New York, but do you have thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a Californian, I, I don't know what a bodega is. <laughs> I'm used to corner stores. Uh, but, you know, similar to, you know, this video, could we talk for a second about his mayoral proposal to fund TikTok-style hype houses and how ridiculous that is? Um, 
you, you know. What is that? I, Just for folks who don't know, what's a hype house? Yeah. So, you know, the the new generation, like rise of TikTok influencers, a few of them, uh, such as like Tony Lopez, I think Chase Hudson is one of the other guys' names, uh, created this, you know, so-called hype house, right? Which is just this sort of big, uh, you know, party house, very famous uh, among uh, TikTok users and that generation. But what I found to be so tone deaf and just out of touch was that Right before he introduced this plan to fund these sort of hype houses, uh, the house itself, along with uh, Tony Lopez and one of the other residents, actually got sued for sexual assault and for attempting to, uh, uh, you know, uh, groom a minor, right? And so I think it just goes to show you how out of touch Andrew Yang is with what's actually happening. There's this new, like, slate of candidates that pop up it's happened a lot in New York, and I, I think some of it is the rise of, of sort of this tech sector that's been growing in New York in the last 10 years due to major tax breaks that like Google has gotten and, and, and other big companies. Um, they've taken over a, a big chunk of Chelsea um, and the meatpacking district. But there's this, there's been a few candidates recently who have run on, on sort of these like fun things, like come meet me at the Soho house and have drinks with me and then go petitioning. Or uh, Siraj Patel, who ran against my congresswoman, uh, Carolyn Maloney, he got in major trouble because a few years ago when he ran against her, they were using Tinder to, uh, to t- t- basically Tinder to like recruit people to volunteer to vote for him. And then he would buy ads um, in really like unique places. But I think what's just so offensive about this, and, and maybe I just take this extra personally, having run for office in New York is income inequality was worse than ever in New York than it's ever been in history. And it's only going to get much, much, much worse with this, the COVID crisis. We have a public housing crisis. We have an affordable housing crisis. We have tax breaks going to every single developer and every single New York City lawmaker, for the most part, I think with the exception of two, takes real estate developer money. And is completely beholden to the police. But these people think that the priority right now should be like a hashtag gimmick. Kate, you live in New York. I know you got feelings. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just feel like an Andrew Yang met like a couple bro 21-year-olds and let them write his entire platform. And they like, weren't even cool 21-year-olds. They're just like, uh, like I wouldn't be surprised if like, Andrew Yang's next proposal was like, and everyone will get a free poster of a babe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, speaking of, of toxic white men and like what happens when you let them get a little bit of power, Tucker Carlson does not believe that white supremacy led to the attacks on Capitol Hill. Let's roll that clip of our dear friend, Tucker Carlson, who so many leftist populists think is, you know, their ally. It destroys people's minds. In the end, it enslaves them. You can judge for yourself what happened last Wednesday in Washington. Rarely has an event been filmed for more angles than that was. You know what that was, and you also know what it wasn't. It was not an act of racism. It was not an insurrection. It wasn't an armed invasion by a brigade of dangerous white supremacists. It wasn't. Those are lies. Why are they demanding that you believe those lies? You should wonder about that. When your doctor claims that your broken arm is stage four pancreatic cancer, you need a second opinion. When he demands that you get chemotherapy, you need to run away because something very dark is going on. And indeed, something dark is going on right now. 
What happened last week in Washington was not new or unusual. In fact, it was sadly familiar. The riot you saw was the perfect illustration of why we should oppose all mob action always. Left uncontrolled, mobs boil over. Violence erupts, people get killed. That is inevitable. That's what always happens. It has happened many times before, not just over the past year, but over the previous years and its previous centuries, in fact, all through human history. That's the way mobs are. Wise leaders know that. That's why they don't encourage mobs. Let's hope that everyone in Washington has learned that lesson. But of course... Okay, so if a mob all tends to believe one version of the same thing, uh, <laughs> whether it's their supreme leader won the election or they wear Auschwitz shirts or are chanting Hitler uh, outside or organizing on white supremacy forums, what planet is he on? And what, what really is like strange to me is I feel like he got talking points because just last week he was trying to distance himself from Trump. And now he's saying it wasn't an insurrection to what? Protect Trump from being convicted? What, what do you get out of this, Tucker? Esperanza, I saw your face. You were just like, Argh! <laughs> Yeah, I mean, first of all, it, it is not at all surprising to me that a Fox News host could be completely out of touch with reality and out of touch with history, right? Uh, but we know that, you know, this is uh, nothing new uh, to the history of our country. I mean, we started as a settler colonial project. And what that means is that it, it wasn't just the military's job to clear the land and wipe out the indigenous people. Uh, they required the cooperation of settlers who would you know, enact uh, violence, you know, vigilante violence in the streets, um, you know, but but also I think something that we really need to understand is that uh, the rhetoric that's going on right now is taking attention away from the ideology of these people, which is white supremacy, fascism, and it's putting the focus on the tactics of these people. And what's going to end up happening is it's going to come back to hurt the left. And we're going to be the ones that are going to face that repression in the future. Here, 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 here. Uh, Kate, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, first of all, just to your comment about why like leftist populists like this guy, isn't he like the heir to the Campbell soup fortune or something? Like... <laughs> He's just like a Fox News hack. He's not saying anything brave, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I definitely would agree with Esperanza's comments. And I also think, you know, Tucker, he, he goes through uh, all these things that it wasn't. And it's like, it, and what do you think it was? You know, it's like looking at my cat and being like, well, it's not an animal. It's not furry. <laughs> like, well, then how are you seeing this? You know? <laughs> Well, I mean, that that's the, he, he was a mob. Like the mob didn't yeah, have a perspective. True. Like yeah. the mob didn't have a place to organize. Like the mob walked in there like zombies. Like where do you think, I mean, yes, it was a mob that had an ideology and yeah, there was a reason. It's, um, I, I think Esponza makes a good point though. It's, I, I've even seen this on the left where suddenly we get obsessed with tactics. And again, like we can have these big, deep conversations, which we have been for years about things like censorship. Uh, taking on big tech, absolutely, was it was an immediate the the the, the way that big tech and their monopoly um, over over this conversation and how they've been profiting off of hate and have as as a result uh, hate groups have reaped the benefit of their business model that absolutely needs to be addressed immediately. 
like having a theoretical college course conversation debate over censorship, which is of course an issue and, and any sort of uh, Patriot Act enhanced uh, policies that might be brought to the table immediately, very important. But we have to also keep our eye on the ball, which is the less we are talking about white supremacy, the more Republicans can just go back into their cave and pretend that that didn't happen, not to mention neoliberals not being educated in just how bad this is. Just my take. Feel free to chime in, guys. You can, it's Friday. No, I just, I agree with you. I agree with you on all points. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I also want to remind people is that let's not forget that, you know, uh, a few months ago when BLM actions were popping up all over the country, Biden was calling for the criminalization of anarchists, right? So I think Mm -hmm. we will see how, uh, you know, allying with the state against uh, these, you know, fascist vigilantes uh, is not the strategy I think we should be taking, you know, sort of in this idea of a three-way fight, I think we need to both see, uh, you know, the capitalist state as our enemy, but also understand that, you know, this uh, fascist upsurge of people, mostly middle class, small business owners, contractors, who feel like the entitlements of white supremacy are no longer theirs to take, uh, you know, they're going to continue enacting the street violence, just like they did in Los Angeles when they viciously attacked a Black woman who was not even involved in any political, uh, you know, protests at that moment. didn't realize my sound was out. Sorry, guys. Uh, Kate Esperanza, I have no doubt we're going to be talking about this for many, many, many weeks. Um, always a pleasure having you on Esperanza Fonseca and Kate Willett. Kate, do you have anything that people can check out right now? Yes, please check out my podcast, Reply Guys. Uh, and it is, we talk about a lot of stuff like this. No McKee's been on. Uh, check it out. Check it out. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us on Fem Friday. Some shout outs to our Super Chat Art. My God, you're so nice, Art. No, I, I, do I have to say this now? So when people give super chats, I have to say what they say. And Art's saying this. Let me make it very clear. No, Miki, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. No, Miki. No, Miki. <laughs> Fun fact, when I was in fifth grade, everybody called me Mickey. And that was the song we played at school dances. And everybody would say like, yo, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Very fifth grade thing. Vichicon505, sending his love. Uh, what happened to essential workers? I thought we were heroes. Yes, they could at least uh, com- they could at least help with the hospital bills for the essentials that got sick. It, an extremely important point. I mean, this is, um, I think that was one of the big takeaways from that speech also was not enough. He didn't lean enough into labor and essential workers, which are clearly have reaped not just the the, the medical, like you said, the it's not just that we don't have Medicare for all. Obviously we can talk about this more at length on another show Um, in the midst of a pandemic. It's that there are going to be all these medical costs that people ensue uh, if they're able to get through COVID, if they're able be able to pay for uh, the treatment for COVID, whether it was listed as COVID or not, um, whether it was, you know, asthma related issues. I mean, there's, there's so many different things that are being put down uh, for medical reasons because, you know, there's, there's cost benefit analysis, but also just the long-term consequences and how expensive that's going to be. I'm really glad you brought up that point. Uh, Art just keeps sending the love and says back to work, but I'll be listening. Thank you, Art. And Ray Lee just said, just checked your merch store. May I suggest that you add 
a TNS book club bookmark with a Patreon link, pr link printed on it to the store. Left is best, no Mickey book kids. Yeah, we're working with Patreon right now because it's a little confusing right now. I agree. It's all on the same page. Um, there's a little bit of an issue in terms of separating it out. Hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. But regardless, if you want to become a member of the book club, great time to plug it. We're currently reading Thomas Paine and the Promise of America by Professor Harvey Kay. And the next book, if you sign up for two books or four books, uh, the next book is The Plunket of Tammany Hall. It's this thin. It's a super easy read and really fascinating. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you for the love. And Michael McAllister. Uh, it needs to be $2,000 attractively and reoccurring. Could not agree more. Do we have any more here? Uh, oh, Ray Lee. Oh, no, that we got Ray Lee. Sorry about that. I think, I think that's it from our super chats and Twitch chatters want to know why we don't acknowledge them. Well, guess what? We are working on getting the tech to be able to see all of our chats on all platforms. We apologize. We're new to Twi Twitch. Uh, Dorsey, our producer here, is going to be monitoring the Twitch chat from now on and send, and we're going to send the best comments for shout outs. So I apologize. I don't see them on my end. We're figuring out the dynamics, lots of moving pieces, but, um, and I am clueless when it comes to this stuff. So just... Super big thanks to Dorsey, who's like holding it all down and bringing guests in and sending me updates. And, you know, like Harvey Kay's in the live chat right now. Thank you, Harvey Kay. And of course, thank you to Midi Doctors, who just just as a side note, we've been like getting swarmed by trolls lately. Um, and Midi Doctors and our mods are kicking ass. So thank you, Midi Doctors. Thank you, Bob Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel for keeping that chat uh, troll-free. And oh, Mike and PA just raided the Twitch. Thanks, Mike and PA, our friend. He's going to come on the show. I think we've booked him. Uh, so you'll see him, I believe, next week on the show. All right, everybody have a wonderful weekend. We will see you on Tuesday, 3 p.m., Eastern. And don't forget, we're doing special coverage on Wednesday, which is Inauguration Day. Two hours of coverage from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. You definitely want to check that out. Be well, stay safe, and solidarity.